Well, happy Easter to everyone. He is risen. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're still with me. Good, good. I know some of you are already on to the egg hunt that's to follow. Some of you are running through the checklist for brunch that you're ready to prepare. We're so glad that you're with us today. I also want to extend a special welcome to all of you who are worshiping online with us this morning, wherever you are. We're so glad that you're with us today, and happy Easter to you as well. Now, one of the challenges of, of Easter and of preaching Easter because I know y'all are really concerned with the challenges of preaching Easter. One of the challenges of preaching Easter is you got to tell the same story. You get to tell the same story every year. But the hope, the intent, the effort is to try to like create a different way to approach the story. Because as we all know, familiarity kind of lulls us into a state of complacency. They say familiarity breeds contempt. I'm not sure that contempt is the right word that we have for Easter, although if you are here this morning with contempt for Easter, you are welcome. In the name of Jesus Christ, we're glad you're here. There'll be prayer after the service is over for you. But I think what happens for us with Easter is like a movie that you've seen a dozen times or two dozen times. You know how the story goes. And so as the story goes along, your brain fills in the gaps. There's no surprises. There's no, you know, startling turns or twists. All of your expectations are met and fulfilled because you're familiar with it. And so as I was kind of preparing and working through this Easter story over the last couple of weeks, I was like, God, give me something that I've never seen before that maybe somebody else hasn't seen before so that we can see this story with fresh eyes, that we can experience again this story of Christ's resurrection. And uh, what you hope happens when you're trying to write a sermon is that God gives you that insight about two weeks in advance. That gives you lots of time to flesh it out, to wrestle with it, to prepare. Mine came at 2 p.m. yesterday afternoon. So, you know, just adjust your expectations accordingly. But here's what I noticed. There's a particular detail that Matthew adds in his account of the story that none of the other gospel writers include. And it's something that it's kind of like a thread on a sweater. As you start to pull it, it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Some of the good details in scripture work like that. And so I found it, it was revealed to me, and I just started to pull on it. And so if you'll indulge me, what I'd like to do this morning is just to kind of show you what I found when I started to pull on this one little detail. Now this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Over the last kind of seven weeks of Lent, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we thought it would be fitting that we kind of wrap up Easter and the season of Lent with Matthew's account of the resurrection. So if you've got your Bibles or if you've got your phones, you want to pull those out, or if you just want an excuse to be on your phone this morning, you can do that as well. That's all right. Pull it out, turn to the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and if you're like, I, I don't want to do any of that, then I'll put it on the screen for you, and we'll just walk along with the scripture together. So here we go, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. It says, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, if before you had come in this morning, we had pulled you aside in some kind of candid video and we we're like, hey, in 30 seconds or less, 
tell us the Easter story? My guess would be you'd get the major details. You would get Jesus, maybe the tomb, the stone, and some people show up. Maybe you'd include an angel or two. Most of you would kind of cover those high marks in this story that we're so familiar with. How many of you would have remembered that there was an earthquake when all of this happened? I don't know how many times I've read this story, but I don't know that I ever remember an earthquake being a part of of Matthew's account. Now, here's what's interesting. Matthew is the only one who mentions an earthquake. And so as I was kind of digging into this detail that just kind of stood out to me, what I found was that this little detail lends itself to the historical accuracy of this resurrection account. This isn't just this myth that started to emerge out of the first century context. This isn't just some story that was concocted by a group of followers trying to perpetuate this idea and the teachings and the message of Jesus. No, it's in the little details that we find evidence for the accuracy and the validity of this resurrection account. Here's why. What Matthew shares with us about this earthquake fits with what we know about earthquakes produced in that region and within the geology of Judea. Now, throughout the first and second centuries, both large and small-scale earthquakes occurred all throughout that region, all up and down the Dead Sea Rift Valley. Now, geologists have kind of determined some statistics, and what they have discovered is that approximately over 100 large-scale earthquakes have happened in that region over the last 22 centuries. Now, if you're doing the math in your head and you're playing along this morning, that's one earthquake every 50 or 60 years. Now, here's what's cool. The Jewish historian and author Josephus, writing about the events in his day and age, records that on September 1st, 31 BC, in that same area in Judea, there was an earthquake so large that it killed thousands upon thousands of people. And then the next recorded earthquake occurring in that region comes from the writer of the Gospel of Matthew about the earthquake that happens in the midst of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Well, you could say that it's not really that much proof. Matthew could have made it up. That doesn't prove that there was an earthquake. I agree. So in 2011, some geologists decided that they wanted to verify whether or not this actually happened. So they went to this region and they took some samples of the, of the earth. They drilled down into the core and they pulled out however you do. I know there's some geologist who's going to send me an email after this. He's going to be like, well, that's actually not how it works. And my father's a petroleum engineer, so he'll probably be the one who sends me the email. You know, let me tell you, the way that you sample the earth's core. But what they discovered was that not only was there evidence of this earthquake in 31 BC that Josephus writes about, but there was also evidence of another earthquake of similar size and scale that occurred in approximately 31 AD, plus or minus five years. Now, I'm told that anytime you're sampling the Earth's core and you're looking back thousands of years, kind of a a, a margin of error of plus or minus five years lends itself to a high level of accuracy. And so this amazing little detail that Matthew includes lends itself to kind of the historical accuracy of his account and this detail about this earthquake that happened during Christ's resurrection. Now, if you're like me, you're not a resident expert on earthquakes, 
let me briefly remind you how they occur. Now, I have to caveat this, that where I learned this from was a YouTube video designed for kids, because I was like, okay, I need it in like pastor language, simplified down, I need a three minute or less video, and I need illustrations, particularly like clip art. So this is the, the version, so I might be wrong, but this is what I've learned, that underneath the crust of the earth, there are plates that move along and kind of float on all of the magma that exists underneath the surface of the earth. And sometimes these plates gently bump into each other. And when they gently bump into each other, we feel the little tremors here on earth. And sometimes these plates rub against each other and they get stuck because of the unbelievable friction. And they kind of lodge themselves against each other until they release. Similar to a house, maybe you have a house, the foundation shifted, you try to close the door, and then when you try to open the door again because the door frame is shifted and you pull on the door and then the door releases with a lot more energy than you were putting into the door. Same thing happens with earthquakes, so I'm told, save your emails. But this is what happens with the plates. Along these fault lines where these plates meet, there's friction that builds up and then when the plates release and move apart from one another, we get earthquakes. Now, here's what's so interesting. Not only is Matthew the only gospel who includes this detail about an earthquake during the resurrection, Matthew uses this detail about an earthquake kind of symbolically, metaphorically, all throughout his gospel. In fact, there are three distinct moments where Matthew describes an earthquake occurring in the narrative about Jesus and then kind of uses it to help us understand not only are physically and literally the plates shifting, but it also symbolizes a shift that's occurring. A shift that's occurring in our awareness, a shift that's occurring in our understanding of who Jesus is. Now let me show you. Now the first comes in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus and the disciples are in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew writes and he says, a big storm comes and the waves and the wind kind of stir up. The disciples get scared and they run and grab Jesus and they ask Jesus for help. Now, what's interesting about this is there are other words in Greek that could, that could be used to describe a storm. The one that Matthew chooses is a little ambiguous because it's also the word that can mean earthquake. So potentially what Matthew was trying to communicate was that there was an earthquake that happened in that moment and in that region that caused the turbulence and the waters and the waves and all of the things that happen when you kind of predict this kind of Gilligan-type scene in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Geologically, that's what's happening. Here's the shift that Matthew begins to introduce to us in this larger narrative about Jesus' life. This is Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. And if y'all are with me and you're like, this is like such a nerdy pastor detail, then just indulge me. I think this stuff's so interesting. But if you like it, then, then enjoy. Here's what he says. This is what the disciple says to Jesus calming the winds and the waves. He, it says, they were amazed, saying... What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey them, obey him? This is kind of the introduction to Jesus as being someone that has this supernatural ability akin to God to be able to control the natural elements of the world. The waves, the sea, they obey him. It starts to introduce this shift in how we understand Jesus and who we understand Jesus to be. The next time, Matthew introduces an earthquake into the story. 
to indicate another shift in our understanding of who Jesus is occurs in the middle of the crucifixion story. Jesus is taken, hung on the cross. As he's dying, he breathes his last breath. And then there is, Matthew describes, a great earthquake that shakes the earth. Not only does it shake the earth, but it shakes, it shakes the temple and it tears kind of this curtain that separates this innermost sanctum area from the rest of the temple, this place that only the high priest could go, in a sense, kind of metaphorically, symbolically, releasing and exposing God's presence into the whole world. And this is how Matthew describes it. Oh, here we go. Oh, that's not the right slide. Let me read you what it's supposed to say. You know, you think with Easter, you kind of get these details right. Here's what it says. Ignore this slide, but this is the correct verse. So Matthew 27, verse 54. Now, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, truly this man was God's son. Truly this man was God's son. So what happens, once again, as this earthquake is introduced into the narrative and into the story, there's a shift and a transformation that happens in the understanding of the hearer that Jesus is somebody more than just an ordinary man. Well, this is the same way that Matthew uses it in this account that we were just reading. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And this is where the story picks up from there. We've already introduced this idea that earthquakes symbolize a shift in our understanding of who Jesus is. First, he was somebody that had supernatural abilities. Then we see that maybe this is actually God's son with the earthquake that's present during his crucifixion and death. There's one last piece. There's one last step for us to go in this story. It says his appearance, the angel's appearance, was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook, and they became like dead men. They fainted. They collapsed. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, just as he said. That word said can also be translated predicted or promised. So here we go. First, Jesus has command over all the natural elements. Then Jesus is the Son of God. And now Jesus has been raised from the dead. It completes this shift and transformation of our understanding. And it reveals to us a larger shift that has just happened in the world. Life as we know, life as we have come to understand it in the way that it works, is no longer accurate. These women came to the tomb. There was zero expectation that they would find an empty tomb. Because guess what? Dead people stay dead. That's not a revelation to any of us. We recognize that. Another way to say this was nobody was expecting nobody. Right? They showed up to the tomb expecting Jesus to be there. But this earthquake introduces this shift in how the world works. As Michael was describing it earlier in between songs, death no longer is kind of the ultimate threat. There is now life that exists beyond death. Sin and death no longer have hold over us. We are not bound and imprisoned and chained by them. Death literally is arrested. And new life is always possible. This is the shift that Matthew introduces into 
this story. But like any time that there's a shift in life of such significance and of such importance, we're always a little hesitant. We always have some questions. We always struggle to understand the fullness of what this means. And so the angel likely anticipating the two Marys questions and confusions about what has just happened, both just the literal shift in the ground below their feet and also this shift in their understanding about how life actually works, the angel invites them in to kind of have some of their questions addressed. So the angel says, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead and indeed is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. No, come check it out for yourself. This thing that you didn't expect to happen has actually happened. And now you need to go because he's going to meet you in Galilee. And you're going to see him there. And so the women, they follow. I mean, if you were them, you'd probably obey too, right? I mean, an angel shows up, earthquake happens, tomb, stone rolls away from the tomb, tomb's empty. It's like, well, we better go do what they said. You know, this is pretty serious stuff. So they left the tomb and with great fear and joy ran to tell his disciples. Now, anytime you're at kind of the threshold of a transition or a season in your life, something new is happening, something different is happening, life has changed unexpectedly. Maybe life's kind of swept in and blown in from the side in a way that you didn't expect or predict and it feels like the ground beneath your feet is starting to shift and change. We often carry into it some mixture, some kind of kind of formula, combination of both fear and joy. Maybe a little cautious optimism, maybe a lot of dread and foreboding, a sense of uncertainty and unpredictability. Maybe our tendency is to kind of rush headlong into it and we lean into that great joy emotion. Or maybe for some of us, we're the opposite and we're kind of inclined to kind of lean back and tap the brakes a little bit and say, hold on, wait a minute, I don't know, this doesn't feel safe but we all find ourselves in some place in that continuum. And depending on the shift and the transition that we experience in our own lives, we might move and find ourselves in different places with different mixtures of emotion as we try to move forward. Now, it's not just a literal earthquake that Matthew introduces into the story like we described. It's also kind of a metaphorical, a figurative earthquake, a shift in their understanding of how life works. And in the same way, I think that there's a lesson for us this morning in this story about the seasons and the moments in our lives when the ground below us begins to tremor and quake and feels really unstable. Sometimes transitions are positive things. Sometimes you're thrown into them without you know, anybody asking for your approval or your permission. Things come out of nowhere and they kind of turn your world upside down. Maybe it's a relationship that changed unexpectedly or ended. Maybe it's a, a betrayal that you didn't see coming. Maybe it's an unkindness that you didn't expect from that person who said that they were always going to support you and stick up for you. Maybe for you it's an unexpected medical diagnosis. Or maybe worse, it's severe terminal illness or even death that catches you by surprise on a random afternoon when you weren't expecting it. Maybe it's mandatory retirement forced upon you earlier than you expected or early termination from a job that you thought that you had a long career and future in. There are lots of seasons in our life 
where the ground below us gives way and the bottom drops out and we're left stumbling and staggering and looking for stable, secure footing and ground. And I think the message of Easter speaks to those seasons as well. Because here's what happens next in the story. As the women are running to go tell the other disciples, Jesus suddenly meets them and he greets them. He welcomes them. And they came to him and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Now, when I was growing up, we would do earthquake drills in my school. Um, There weren't a lot of earthquakes in Wichita Falls, Texas, but nevertheless, we were prepared if there was going to be one. We were ready for the earthquakes. And I don't know if you've ever experienced an earthquake drill. After the sunrise service this morning, a woman who grew up in California said, we did the same thing. And I was like, well, at least Wichita Falls is doing what California does. That probably is some kind of litmus test for the accuracy of these earthquake drills. But when the earthquake drills would happen, you were often told to maybe hide under a desk or a table or a solid, stable surface to maybe prevent things from falling down upon you. But the other thing that you were often told to do, if you weren't in school necessarily, if you found yourself in your home, is you would go where? Anybody know? A doorway. That's right. You would find yourself into a door frame. And at first I was kind of puzzled by this. Like, why would you go into the middle of a door frame in the middle of an earthquake? But if you've ever seen a house that's de- like starting to be demolished, all of the walls are imploded and then you have these little doors that just are remained, you know, in this kind of the destruction of this house. And so apparently, and I'm sure some of, the, some of the architects here this morning can describe for me the structural integrity of the door frames as opposed to the rest of the house. But they tell you to go to the door frame because it is the most stable and it is the most secure place in the whole house when the walls and the grounds begin to shake and quake and tremor. Now notice what the women do in this story. Matthew always uses the women as the model for what we should do. Kind of they are the aspirational image in which we should strive and aspire to. We should follow and do what they do. So what do the women do in the midst of all of the shifting and all of the quaking and all of the uncertainty that falls around them? They grab hold of Jesus' feet. They hold on to the most secure thing that they can find. The thing that in the midst of all of the uncertainty and all of the turmoil and all of the unpredictability, they grab hold of Jesus' feet. Now just after this account, Matthew describes another group of people. He describes the Roman soldiers who saw the angel froze and then fainted. Typical, right? The women in times of crisis hold it together, they do the right thing, and then the guy collapses, right? It's like, like in the birthing room, you know, you always see those scenes. It's like, anyway, I won't describe it for you. You know, far better than I do. But in this account, Matthew describes what the soldiers go into next. Instead of finding Jesus' feet, holding on to something secure, they go back to these old familiar people and patterns and systems. They go back and they tell their superiors what has just happened and they begin to devise and concoct a plan and a conspiracy to cover up the events that have just unfolded. I think in the same way we have the choice before us. In the midst of all of the shifting ground beneath our feet, do we hold on to that in Christ which is truly secure? Our solid ground, our firm foundation, our cornerstone as some of the songs describe? 
Or do we cling to that which is fleeting, that which is feeble? These familiar patterns of distraction, of numbing, of overindulgence, these patterns of addiction, experiences, all of these things that we try to cling to when life around us gets difficult that are never capable of holding the weight of who we are. That's what's so interesting about the choice the women make. Not only do they cling to Jesus' feet, but it says they worshiped him. That idea of worship is to reorient your life towards, to devote your life towards. They placed the full weight of their life and their trust and their belief in the person of Jesus. And I think that's the choice that we're reminded of this morning here on this Easter Sunday. In the middle of the earthquakes that you face in your life, what do you cling to? When things feel scary or new or unexpected or unbelievably tragic and painful, what do you hold on to most? What is it that you're tempted to find and seek for shelter, for stability, and for security? The writer of Matthew makes it clear. The only safe place, the only trustworthy place is at the feet of Jesus. And so the women do as we're instructed to do. And then Jesus responds. You can imagine Jesus looking down with love and compassion, tenderness at these women who are clinging to them, just coming out of this unbelievably kind of frightening experience and encounter you know, years of devotion and allegiance to Jesus and then discovering his body gone and then the earthquake and all of the things that are all wrapped up in and compressed into this one moment. And he looks down at them and he says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And I think in the words that Jesus offers these women, he offers to us this morning three simple phrases, three simple reminders. The first is do not be afraid. Now we hear that and it sounds very immediate, very kind of present moment. But if you look at the language in its original Greek, really what Jesus is telling them, the command, the instruction that he's offering them is stop being afraid in the future. Cease any fear that you may feel. It's not an in this moment, don't feel fear. It's you no longer have any reason to ever be afraid. You can set aside any fear that may come your way and you can let it go. Do not be afraid. Cease to fear in an ongoing, continual basis. The second thing that he reminds the women of, that I think he reminds us of, is that he will be with us. He says, I will meet you in Galilee. I'm going to be there with you. And fast forward to kind of the end of Matthew's account in this gospel. Just a few verses later when Jesus and the women and the disciples all come together in Galilee. Jesus reminds the disciples of the same message that he gives the women. And the very last thing that Matthew writes in his gospel, the very last words out of Jesus' mouth are, 
remember because of our tendency to forget, because of our tendency to become distracted, to become overwhelmed, be consumed by the fear, the anxiety, the uncertainty of life as we see it and experience it now and as we anticipate it will be. Remember, I am with you always. Jesus promises us his continual presence in our life, which is the reason that we no longer have to be afraid when the bottom drops out and the walls fall apart and the ground beneath our feet starts to shake and to fall and to give way. Because we can hold on to something that is stable and is secure and is always with us. And then the last thing that Jesus tells the women is he says, go and tell others. Take this message of hope and of joy and of comfort of this freedom from fear, this freedom from even death. Go and share this message with others. And so for those of us this morning who are Easter people, who believe in the resurrected Lord, not only do we not have to be afraid, not only can we trust in Christ's continual presence in our lives, but we're given instruction to share that message to other people, to take it out of these walls and to remind people that in the midst of the worst things in their life, there is a hope greater than their immediate circumstances. There's a hope greater than the fear and uncertainty that they're experiencing, the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that they feel. There's a hope greater than all of that. And it's found in the person of Jesus Christ to which we can always cling to because he is always with us. And so as we come to the conclusion of this Easter story, I think there's nothing left for us to do but to stand and to sing one last time a reminder that Christ is indeed risen. Let me pray for us this morning and then I'll invite the band to lead us in one final song. Gracious God, as we come before you this morning, let us remember that it is at your feet that we find security and stability in this life. That with you, we have confidence and we have the hope that death is never the final thing and death is not the worst thing that we can experience because there is always life anew with you. God, help us to be Easter people to take this message out of these doors and into the world and into our lives and to share this message of hope with others. That Christ is risen. That Christ is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.